This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay talk with Morgan Taylor of Mink. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me, as always, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 249, 249 episodes of this show we have done, and um, we're in season five. Oh, getting close to the end of season five, Jay. We're doing something different this week. Oh, yeah? What's that? Well, we are... We're going back. I feel like Doc Brown. We're going back to the future, Jay. <laughs> okay. Uh, sort of. So back in season one, episode 36, we reviewed an album for a band called Mink. Uh, it was mm-hmm. called Get In, Get Out. We were both fans of that record. And they mm-hmm. were the band was from Dayton, and we didn't know a whole lot about the band. But we, uh, we reviewed the record and shared it with our listeners. And then lo and behold... Five years later, out of the blue, we get an email about that very same record mm. and about that band, giving us all sorts of backstory that we didn't know and all sorts of information that we were without at the time. So I said, well, we got to talk about not only this, but there was so much in- interesting stuff about the Dayton scene in the 90s. And we just decided, you know, we're going we're gonna to do something we haven't done, which is go back and talk about a record the second time and not just that record, but a whole bunch of other stuff. And to help us do so, joining us from not upstate New York, but uh, <laughs> south upstate. Let's call it that. Let's call it south upstate New York. <laughs> Morgan Taylor. Morgan, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks so much, guys. This is great. So Jay and I were really um, excited when you sent that email because it was like a bolt of lightning hit us. We are like, oh, like we get to talk about this record again. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> this is one that stuck with, I mean, we, we talked about it when we did the review. That was something that when we were in a band in the early 2000s that we discovered back then when it was, you know, the internet was in its infancy, 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 can't say that word tonight, too many uh, Roman Cokes. Anyway, there was hardly any information. So we had to sort of parse it out from different sources. And then you came along and filled in all this information for us. So... Thank you for doing so because that oh, made our day. Uh, well, but you, it opened up a whole Pandora's box of other things we wanted to talk about with you. Sure. Yeah. Can you get into? I think for the listeners that were confused with us at the time and didn't get the chance to read your email, can you sort of just briefly run us through uh, the history of Mink and um, what happened with that band in terms of how it formed and then what ended up happening with it dissolving? Yeah. I'll take a deep breath. All right. Uh, um, well, Mink, Mink, for me was the last band I was in, and when I still lived in Dayton, Ohio. Okay. Uh, and this came at the end of a succession of several local Dayton bands I had been in, starting in probably, I'm going to say 1985, 85, 86. So how old are you then, roughly? I'm 46. Okay, so you're just a few years older than me and Jay, so that would be, you'd probably be like, what, like 17, yeah. 18, that yeah, range? Well, I, yeah, I was starting out, um, I was 15, I remember, okay. yeah, my first band, I was 15, and turning 16, in probably in, in, in that same band, so yeah, around 85, 
It would have been 1985. Okay. And we, a cover band. And we were playing a couple originals. And um, that band was short-lived. You know, we were. it was just the first one, and we were trying things and playing our originals as well as top 40, you know. <laughs> I still have cassettes of all this stuff, too. It's in, and uh, listening to us singing Hot-Blooded by Foreigner. <laughs> um and uh, songs of by Journey, but we're ha- none of our we none of us could sing. We had to sing everything an octave lower, so it just sounded really aw- awkward. Um, and we, a drummer didn't know the difference between the one and the two. So, but the fir- after the first drum fill, uh, the kick and snare were reversed for the rest of the song, and it was just sort of <laughs> <laughs> we didn't know. We didn't know. It was, well, but, it was I'll, a give blast. You, I'll give you credit. I'll give you credit that you even knew to lower the key. Right. <laughs> I just knew, like, well, I can't sing that. My voice yeah. changed two years ago. Whatever, you know. Yeah. We were so young, but I was I was very into singing uh, at a very early age, and I had a very high, sweet voice, and was singing in church musicals and school stuff, and and I was in a band. My, I guess. Well, I guess there's another one before it. I, I maybe I don't count it as much because. Uh, we didn't do any originals. We didn't weren't writing, but I was the singer, and I got picked because my voice hadn't changed yet, and I could sing. Mostly Rush. It was mostly Rush covers, um, uh, nice. and yeah. <laughs> so and I, I could hit the Getty Lee stuff. Yeah. So anyway, a couple of years later, uh, the voice has changed, and and here we are, and no one was could really sing. So, but I just kind of give it a shot. So. We were we that band kind of ran its course and we played a couple of parties. Had the power shut off on us because it was so bad. Like somebody went in the basement and shut the power off. Like you guys sound okay, but when you sing, it sucks. Oh. <laughs> and um, and so yeah, the next band I stayed with the keyboard player Darren, who plays into the the picture a while later again too. Um, but Darren and I were school friends from elementary school, and so he and I were in that band together. I, I feel embarrassed mentioning the name, but it's so great. Um, the Body Electric. Wow. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> so Darren and I went on, and, and we kind of um, basically we, we were like hooking boo boxes together and figuring out how to do our own multi tracking and, and stuff like that because we didn't have a four track or anything. But we were writing a lot more, he and I as a duo and and then we started um got a new drummer and we found a guy who had a bass guitar but really wanted to be a guitarist and i mentioned that and the only reason it's important to me is because it was the beginning of me being a bass player and and i would set down my guitar for half the set and we would switch back and forth and I really learned to play bass in that band and that band was called Pause for Effect which um, the name came comes from a Gary Newman song because Darren is that pause like P-A-U-S-E or pause like P-A-W-S oh <laughs> no we weren't uh, we weren't dog fans it was uh, oh okay <laughs> it was Gary you know Gary Newman the yeah keyboard. Cars yes, of course everybody yes. knows Cars well Darren was a huge Gary Newman fan and um that's a lot, one of the lyrics from a song. And so we were paused for effect, and we we had, you know, we were playing. Is after I had discovered REM, 
and The Cure and Aztec Camera and all these uh, 80s alternative bands, and we were playing half, you know, half and half probably, originals and covers. We were entering Battle of the Bands and at Canal Street Tavern and things like that, and started meeting other people in the scene. Um, and we, I was extremely enamored of another local band called Rhino 39. And it was four guys, and they were playing, you know, everybody was calling it alternative, but they were playing pop song, pop writing. It was pop songwriting, but everybody had, you know, bangs and button their top buttons. So it was alternative. <laughs> um, and it was a scene, you know, and it was fun. I made a lot of great friends and was part of it. And but the, the bass player was Danny O'Connor, who we just thought, he's, you know, he's the best bass player. He's so great. You know, telling our bass player, Let's, you know, when, in our next rehearsal, like, try to play that like Danny O'Connor would play it, you know. <laughs> um, or, you know, myself, try to imitate him. But, you know, we, we had uh, great influence from that. And I think we, we, we made it two or three rounds into the, Dayton band playoffs that year and I think Rhino 39 actually were the band that beat us and knocked us out of the band competition and um, that band, Pause for Effect actually our first gig we ever played uh, officially out in a bar was at Canal Street Tavern in I'm going to say June of 86 I'm pretty sure and we opened up for this band called Guided by Voices. Mm-hmm. And it was a variation, uh, an early variation of them. It was uh, it was Bob, of course, and Peyton Eric, I believe, is drums. And I, I think the guitarist was Paul Comstock. These names are sticking out for me. But um, I remember he complimented my guitar. I had a fend- an old Fender guitar. I was like a music master or something in the case in the back in the dressing room and he was complimenting it and we liked them they were they they were very they seemed at the time very rem influenced the early rem the first couple of records they they went on to do other stuff i can't remember what but <laughs> just a couple things but a couple things but that was really neat that was, just became a, a nice footnote that i got to say out loud how cool is that <laughs> yeah <laughs> um yeah, Pause for Effect lasted until probably it was only about a year. Here's the funny thing: is all these bands they seem I seem they seem like we were in them for so long. Um, but they, if you're looking back, it was only like you know a year, year a year lifespan on these some of these bands. But Pause for Effect, um, there was another local band that was to us. They were like the most famous ones. It was a band called The Scam. And I think they had won the Dayton Band playoffs. And their singer was uh, David Ponitz. And he, um, we saw them once. <laughs> this is a funny story. Darren and I, we went to see the scam. We heard, oh, oh, we heard about the scam. They're the best. You know, they won the Dayton Band playoffs. And we wanted to go see what the, what the deal was. So we saw them. I think it was like at the, I don't remember. It doesn't matter where it was. We saw them and... They were really great. They were playing a lot of '60s uh, pop rock covers, but the singer David was—he was a very good singer, and extremely charismatic, and was good at 
controlling the crowd, and, and he was definitely levels above what we were doing or able to do. And we just, but we saw it, we looked up to him, and thought he was was good. You know, people with varying opinions about whether or not it was cheesy or corny, it, it didn't really have an effect on us at that time. But we really, we really looked up to him and 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 thought they were great. So it, the reason I'm mentioning them is because, plus for a fact, um, Darren quit, and to I, I can't remember how how it happened, but Darren quit and started playing keyboards with the scam, and and it was really weird because uh, we were looking up to this, them, and, and now all of a sudden Darren quits and he's in this band that was in our minds. Like a much bigger band, and and I was just kind of jealous, and and it was weird. But then within a couple of weeks, I think Darren came over and said, "Hey, I've been talking to David, and the scam was the old guys are gonna are gonna leave, and um, we want you and and John to come in to the scam." So I had that was exciting For, at, at the time in 1986. It was like, "Oh my God, I'm I'm gonna make it." We're making it. This is making it. <laughs> what was the scam like? What was the music like? Uh, it was a lot of... Um, still played a few of the 60s covers, but then we were doing more... Well, David was very um, uh, assertive with his lyrics and um, politics. And there's a lot of political songs. And stuff that I, I honestly... At the time, I had to know, really had no idea what he was singing about. Um, but, you know, they were all in pop form, but he was singing about um, uh, Soweto, Africa, the plight of, of Africans in apartheid and things like that and, um, in South Africa. And I just, I wasn't connected to any of that stuff. I was just interested in the rock and roll part of it. But you know, it, we enjoyed some uh, local success, and and you know, people came to the gigs, and we were the music was very. See, David was very influenced. I think it was very Sting and, and Police at the time. We were joining. We joined that band, but REM was definitely a biggie at that time. REM was huge with everybody, and a lot of arpeggio guitar stuff like Peter Buck, Ernest. Earnest songwriting and lyrics, singing about stuff that that. Um, looking back now, um, it seemed a little kind of off-putting, maybe if if you weren't into that, into politics. <laughs> mm. I don't know. I mean, I, I tend to overanalyze things, but um, uh, that band dissolved into. Let's see. Actually, it grew. It changed from the scam. And we wanted to kind of break free from what the scam had done and change, um, kind of, you know, come out of the cocoon, I guess. And we, the band was changed to the Life and Times. We became the Life and Times. And John, who was the bass player in Phosphor Effect, was gone. I played bass full-time now in Life and Times. And we got this guy who David met, this man from Cincinnati, Named Sean Haney, a very good guitarist, had a beautiful vintage Lake Placid Blue Stratocaster, and uh, was connected on a different level in the music industry because he also uh, worked as a, like a, a 
sound man and stagehand and roadie for for famous bands like well, at the time I don't know if you have you heard of the uh, he was working for the Screaming Blue Messiahs you remember those guys Mm-mm. know the Dave, name uh, he worked for David and David remember that in the eighties uh, and then he went to they might be giants okay and then he worked for the Goo Goo Dolls and then he, he um, God lives underwater and then he was mixing uh, oh boy Midnight Star. You know, the, the R&B group? Oh, yeah. Didn't they do uh, Catch Me, I'm Falling? Is that Midnight Star? Maybe. Maybe. That might be my... my the, the, you uh, dropped the mix- bomb on me. Oh, is that... that was, I think that was the... Oh, I thought wow. that was the Gap so, Band. Was that the Gap? I think okay. that's the Gap Band. I think you're, you, you're probably right. Um, uh, my knowledge is, is... The lack of knowledge in that area is showing me. <laughs> <up>. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> okay. So we had this life and times, and we were getting some really great gigs. We got uh, David, who had just graduated from uh, Miami University, and the plan was uh, he and I were going to move in together. I was still at my parents through all this, at my parents' house in Kettering. We moved in together as roommates and with one other friend, uh, Joe, who became a roadie. Um, but he was my uh, one of my childhood best friends. So we're roommates, and we're the life and times. Darren's there, and it's me and David and Sean and this drummer named Norman. It's very good. Who uh, David? He tried out for. I wasn't there for when he tried out. He basically joined the scam through David when they tried out new drummers when when that whole thing was falling apart. So anyway, life and times. We were we opened for uh, Ten Thousand Maniacs. The Smithereens, um, uh, Flock of Seagulls. Oh, we. So, so is this like late, late, late eighties, early nineties? This is yeah. This is eighty eight, eighty nine. Yeah. And, and and we were getting these good gigs. One of the reasons, I mean, we like to think because we thought we were good, but um, I think. Uh, David had a relationship. He was friends with the, somebody who worked at the promoter office and went to college with somebody who worked, I think, Belkin Productions. And so we were able to get some really nice gigs. Oh, yeah, we Belkin. Booked, booked, yeah. I forgot about Belkin. Yeah, right? But, so we got in on these uh, as opening acts on some really high-profile shows, and it was very nice, and it was very um, encouraging, and it felt good. It felt like we, you know, had momentum, and then we saw a very pivotal moment for me. <clears throat> November of '88, we saw this band. We opened for this band at Canal Street called Trip Shakespeare. Mm. You've heard of them? They're well, yeah, that's Am- Dan Wilson's band before he was in Semisonic. Right, well, Dan Wilson. Yeah, it was Dan Wilson's brother's band. Matt Wilson was the. That was his. Right. Dan was the was the brother in that. And John Munson and, and Elaine Harris, but so that really changed changed me a lot, and I I think I started taking singing way more seriously than I ever had. Uh, they they were like the band they were they were warming up their vocals in the alley behind Canal Street, and that that concept was just 
out of this world. I'm like, oh my god, they warmed up their vocals. <laughs> like, yeah. So seriously, they 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 declined uh, a uh, a smoke of anything before the show because they wanted to save their voices. <laughs> what were they? Warm- I I want to imagine that they were doing like some sort of doo wop. Uh, warm up. <laughs> Was that? I don't know. I don't know. I, I wish I knew because I became uh, very enamored and, and obsessed with them and their music and songwriting and the the mystique behind their their persona and and all the things. But they were great, and we followed them around, and and um, it was a pivotal moment. I, I'm, I'm. My girlfriend at the time and I made uh, fake IDs. I was only 20. We make fake IDs so that we could get into the, sh- the Trip Shakespeare show in Chicago at Lounge Axe. And it was it was a great experience. <laughs> and and it was it was I'm going on about it because it's it's actually um, I ended up playing with some of those guys much later with my current project. But uh, anyway, so. Trip Shakespeare. I don't want to divert too much. This was Life and Times, and basically, I I don't know if, if the influence of Trip Shakespeare contributed to the way David and I started approaching music, but it kind of I think Darren felt alienated, and um, because we were becoming more guitarish, and he was just kind of like, "You guys just want to sound like Trip Shakespeare." And, um, I can't remember what happened exactly, but. Life and Times broke up, and David and I went on as a, a duo, acoustic duo. By this point, our hair is very long, and we're you know wearing tiki necklaces and and shorts and things like that. <laughs> we, <laughs> my um, God, what, why? What was going on? I don't, I don't understand. know. <laughs> it was before we had the no short, no shorts on stage rule. Apparently. Uh, okay. Oh. So, but we, we, what we were doing was, was really experimental, um, really intricate acoustic, two acoustic guitar interplay, um, vocal, super detailed vocal interplay, harmonies, uh, trade-off uh, lead vocals on everything, duo. And people called us the, uh, people sometimes made fun and called us the Indigo Guys. Um, and there (laughs) what was the real name oh it was called glee and beak which actually the indigo guys is way better yeah i think we chose glee and beak because we had to we got uh we got a chance to be in this undercurrents it was the undercurrents music festival in cleveland ohio yeah Yep. In 1990, I'm going to say, call it 90, and we had to submit a name officially for us, our, our duo, and we didn't have one, and, and Glee and Beak, I don't know it's how that came out, but it just did, and it is it is what it is. Um, that's what it was called, and so we were that duo for for two years, okay, so this is leading up, and we did some great stuff with Clean Beak too. As far as with that was the band I was in when we opened for Bob Dylan at, in um, at Memorial Hall in Dayton, Ohio. Whoa! We got on that bill. It was a good bill to get on. 
and um, I'm trying to think what else we it's all, it's going to blur now. But we started visiting New York City during Glean Beak, and that was we had basically uh, towards the end of Glean Beak. I'm going to I'm going to move this on. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, towards the end of Glean Beak, uh, we David wanted to we wanted to move. We all wanted to move to New York. But David was the only one who who actually did, and it got to the point where I, I quit Lane Beak, because I just I had had, I just felt like it was time. I didn't want to to, to be in that duo anymore. Um, so David moved to New York, and he became David Poe, and um, he got uh, a record deal with Sony in '96. 95, something like that. And we stayed in touch. He called and um, asked us to, uh, it was me and this drummer from Dayton, whose name is Matt Espy, to be in. I just skipped a couple bands. I hope you, I, I realized how long I've been talking, and I hope that's okay. It's all right. We're long form here. Uh, is this is this okay? I mean, you're you are totally fine. Okay, I'll give you the let me give you the cliff notes then for the next the okay the bands uh, after Life and Times, Gleanbeak, and then Gleanbeak became uh, broke up and David moved away, and then I and then I got back together with Darren from those original couple of bands, and he had started a band called Uuwa, and he had this plan, and it was Darren and Danny. From Rhino Thirty Nine, I guess it does make sense that I mentioned all this stuff, so it's not that tedious. Okay, this this now you have context for all these members, right? Yeah. Okay, so Danny from Danny from Rhino Thirty Nine, and Darren, and my and this guy Nick Eddy, who was uh, I met Nick Eddy in high school um, when I went to Fairmont. He was in my speech and drama class, and we instantly got along. We had very similar senses of humor and loved a lot of the same music and we his personality was we just got along amazingly well and um we became very good friends pretty quickly and i never did anything with him musically until uuwa which um which is not true sorry i'm gonna step back there's so many bands you guys do you really want all this (laughs) Yes, give it all to us. All right, all right. Okay. You're writing while you're doing this. I'm typing your Wikipedia page. For, <laughs> I know. Earth so Family Tree. Jesus. Okay. In high school, I started doing this absurdist music duo with Nick once in a while. It started. It was sort of me and some, a few other friends, but Nick was in there too. Um, we would make up these just ridiculous, ridiculously inside joke songs absurdist lyrics about comic book artists um totally just fun for ourselves um but they were the songs were catchy and fun little pop songs and we would play out as acoustic duo and the name of that band was bacarfis b apostrophe c-a-r-f-i-s and it was a blast and we loved playing bacarfis and being bacarfis and so that bacarfis was always floating around in whatever band we were in, uh, like Bacarfus would open up for Life and Times. And then, so that was my first musical um, kind of joining with Nick Eddy. And Uwa formed, and 
that was right after David moved away to New York City. So I was in Uwa with Darren and Danny and Nick, and um, we got a, a drummer, Mike, who was in also from Rhino 39. So Dar- you, Darren is like handpicking all these guys because it's his band. He had this, his he had a very clear vision of of reviving the '80s romantic scene that had only been gone for about three years. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, wow, <laughs> um, way so, ahead of his time. Yeah, yeah, man, that was uh, that was weird because Darren wanted to the band to have this nucleus of just him and Danny and Nick as the, the the band and then the, he would hire everyone else and that just I, just didn't sit well it wasn't it just it wasn't the way you ran your bands in in ohio you know maybe if you move to new york you can do that well what does that mean hire i mean if you're at a band what? that size like i don't right know. i think he read he read some i read a book by prince or something and he said just <laughs> oh, hire everybody yeah i don't know, I don't know. um yeah. Like you so, didn't get a you didn't get a vote, is that basically not it? not really? But the thing was is is Nick and I were very you know um, assertive creative presence presences, and the, the band evolved into us doing um, it being more about uh, the two of us and less about this original vision. And it turned much more guitar-y, and Darren was a keyboard player, and it was very, very synth-heavy. Um, big, uh, large band. I think at one point there was nine of us. There's uh, two girl backup singers and percussion and the whole thing. So anyway, that band, we were signed to this. I don't know if you really can call it signed, but, it, you know, it was a, a very small label, independent label in Chicago called Limited Potential that had put out their, his his what he was famous for at that time was putting out the first Smashing Pumpkins single because uh, this guy in Chicago named uh, Mike Potential was, was his was what he was going by um, <laughs> he put out he had a label called Limited Potential a great name for a label and so Uwa was on Limited Potential and it wasn't. Didn't mean it. he didn't. I don't. There was no money, but it was just a label, and he did some work for us, and he, you know, he worked. He worked for us, and he he did some interesting things and, and helped, uh, kind of get us going, and it was just strange because the band, we kind of were saying we were from Chicago, and we used to do this thing where, um, Darren had us all all making phone calls under the same name as of a fictitious manager called John Bruce. And so we were all calling, trying to book gigs and do manager, managerial things. And it was just it was odd and it felt very unnatural. <laughs> and, um, and I'm, you know, I'm saying, I'm saying negative things, but you know, if there was a lot of great stuff about it. It was, it was fun to, to be with these guys. It's actually fairly brilliant that, all of you called using the same name. I was, I was so weird. I just using using a fake name. I was just terrified on the telephone. Like, <laughs> like what, what if they, they ask for if... your birthday and yeah. you're like, I don't yeah. know, I don't know. Where yeah. were you born? I don't know. 
I'm only 22. You all have to make up individual fake backstories <laughs> about John Bruce. <laughs> so, I'm a I'm a potato farmer from Idaho, and I moved to the big city. And yeah, I'm, I'm, there I'm you go. I'm, these guys are talented. You got to book them. <laughs> what, and I was thinking, well, what if they ask me a managerial question? I don't. Well, no. <laughs> What's a managerial Bye. question like? <laughs> I don't know. That's 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 a good question because, you know, this this the whole concept of whatever it meant to make it was so still at that still, still ethereal, and um, you just I don't know. I guess it, it had always at that up to that point it meant getting a record deal, you know, and somehow that would be that would just solve everything, and then your future is is in, is written, you know. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, kind of the goal of these bands, and and you figure it out as you go, you know. And, and Darren was he was very, you know, he was he had a, a good brain for business stuff, and mailed out. A, we did a lot of mailings, and that was, for, you know, the first time I'd had done any of that and taken all that stuff seriously of, of mass mailings to press and things like that. And he would get us, you know, all, all in on it, and it was just. There was a, but there was a weird divide between us, Darren, and the rest of us, um, and we so we would hang out and without him, and it just kind of it didn't it didn't have a good, um, it didn't have the same vibe as other bands, and as far as like the friends hanging out and everyone's on the same page. So within three years that band was was done and i think we put out four albums like three maybe three full-length albums and a couple of eps and things like that um and it definitely became more guitar-y and more uh nick and morgan focused and i was started to sing lead on some songs which was against the original plan and and it and, it, and eventually the re- we became I became a full member, which uh, basically what that meant was that when the band broke up, I had to shell out for my share of the debt we had accrued. <laughs> oh. No! <laughs> um, oh! Well, yeah. But we watched, you know. So lucky. Yeah. Finally a full member. Yes. <laughs> you got vested and then, yeah. I, yeah. I've never asked Darren, but I wonder if he, if he, if he uh, let us in because he saw the end coming. And knew he wanted to split up the day. <laughs> mm. But we made a really great music video, and we made some. We had a lot of amazing fun, and a lot of trips to Chicago. A lot of driving to Chicago and back in the same night um, to play. We played a lot in Chicago. It ran its course, and things. We moved on, and, and during that, during Uwa. There was a second guitarist added, and his name was Corey, and he was a friend of mine, and we worked at Ben and Jerry's together at the Dayton Mall. And Corey was a great guy, and I met him because um, of, of work of working at the, at the mall. And he was a great guy, very good guitarist, and into the same. We had a lot of the same influences as me, and we would have a great time. And he actually, we had him play guitar with Glenn Beak as sort of an auxiliary member occasionally after I started a relationship, musical relationship, um, just through uh, 
hanging out at Ben, Jer- ben and Jerry's, and then we actually were in a band together. It was that um, I, I found that I was starting to start side projects. That was a sign that the band I was in was not was not really the thing anymore. In my mind, I guess maybe I felt like I needed something else. So I always I would always start a side project, and the side projects always turned out to be way more fun. So the side project during the life and times was this heavy metal cover band, pop, all pop metal, mostly Poison and Guns N' Roses. And it was a blast. And I was the bass player in that with Corey. That's that's how um, I started playing with Corey. So he comes into the picture in Mink 2. So so here it is after we were in Uwa and we, we started, we had this full band. And it was me, Nick, Darren, Danny, and Mike. Two, back, two female backup singers and then Corey on electric guitar, second electric guitar. And we, we after a couple of years, we felt we needed a side project in Uwa because we, we felt it wasn't rocking enough or something. Like we needed, we needed less, less order, I think. We needed, so we formed a band called Nest, which is also important in the development of sort of how we were writing and things. So Nest was... In 1994 to 96, we put out four albums. We were very, it was it was us trying our hardest to write Kiss songs, basically. Uh, like 70s Kiss. Riff rock, like inane lyrics, um, just fun. We just wanted to have fun. We wanted to be loose. We wanted to play through shitty amps and um, sound rock and roll so we had a blast doing that and so nest was me and nick were the two lead singers and i got to stand in the middle of nest i was like in the middle um so i mean it was officially i guess you could say one of the funniest things nick ever said he walked into a nest rehearsal and i was no longer using this this little 10 inch fender or whatever a gorilla brand amp Mm-hmm. <laughs> a gorilla, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I brought in my Marshall half stack. He saw that in the nest rehearsal, and he he said, he kind of it, freaked, it, it he realized at that moment that nest was was the band was the real band now. <laughs> now nest is our main band because yeah. I brought my real amp. It <laughs> changed everything. Um, and I think maybe taking nest seriously was was its ultimate demise. Um, because it lasted four albums and then petered out. Um, so, but it was a blast. But nobody, we played just a hundred shows, a hundred shows in empty bars for two years, and it was an absolute blast. Uwa broke up, and uh, Nest kind of lasted a little bit longer. And then I was, I was, uh, what was I doing? I was bartending at the Night Owl downtown in the Oregon district. Yep. Been there. And about at this time bandless. Okay. So here's where I get to answer, finally answer your question, which is David Poe called me and we'd stayed in touch and he had the opening slot on Lisa Loeb's, uh, nine, nine, uh, Nine Stories. Oh, I'm missing the, the her album with her big song on it. Stay right. Is that called Nine Stories. Well, well I think her band was called Lisa Loeb and the Nine Stories. And some, yeah, that album. 
apologize if she ever listens to this, but um, so we opened up for her and the band, I, I, he called me, he wanted me to play bass. And the drummer we got was this guy, Matt Espy, who was in a lot of local um, Dayton bands. He was in Cage, was the band that I think he was in um, before, closest to, to Mink. Um, and Kate, and we saw, we used to see Matt out and playing shows. Um, and he was very hard, like a hard hitting, really creative drummer, just really good, really solid. Um, but was a little unorth unorthodox, would typically not just play straight four four. You know, he always would kind of change things up and make them interesting. And he had a, a great reputation, and I'm not sure if I suggested him, but anyway, it, the band, the David Poe band, was me on bass and Matt on drums, and we went out for two weeks, opening up for Lisa Loeb in Canada. And um, we, uh, Matt and I bonded through that experience, and we kind of were like, we got home from that whole trip. It was very exciting, very fun, and we were playing in, in nice venues. And um, we got home, and we were sort of like, well, "Now what?" <laughs> um, and I think while we were gone, like Nick, and I was at the time I was roommates with Nick and Dan at this time, and they assumed that we were I was just sort of gone now and okay well he's gonna go off to be with David and he's going to go to New York now that just seems inevitable to them so they were surprised when we came home Matt and I were sort of we had that well what now attitude and we wanted to start a new we decided like well let's get a new band going and so Nick and Dan were there and Corey um, we were all very tight, and so it was just, it wasn't really a question of who was going to be in it. It was like me and Matt, and then we got, in, we asked Nick, and I think he was very surprised. Nick said he was very surprised that I uh, wanted to come home and start a new band. And, but, you know, didn't, there was no question, we just started doing it. And we got together the first time, and, and the, the chemistry was just, so perfect and so effortless there was nobody there just there was not any feeling that um, there was anybody on a different page at all um, it, it just sounded so strong and different and fresh and real to all five of us that it was absolutely thrilling from just the first moment and Matt, um, he actually was a huge fan of Uwa. I found this out later, but we used to ask Matt to, he would run our merch table when we were in Uwa and sell our t-shirts. And he said he used to just love coming to our shows and just sitting there and just watching. He couldn't believe how tight, how tight we were, is what he would say. I think it was probably more, it's kind of synthetically tight, I feel like, is my feeling of how it was. But, um, and that was, I, th I feel like our drummer in that band was, was very good, very steady, like a human metronome, but also about the same 
uh, soul. I think I don't know. That's I feel I feel hmm. bad saying anything negative about about these guys because you know you and you end up being best friends with people you're in bands with. Yep. So all this, it all comes up, and there's always guilt. But we'll get into that later. Uh, okay. So, so what year is this when uh, you guys okay. first start? So here we are. It's we're almost an hour in. We're, no, we're talking about Mink. Um, this was '96. Okay. Matt and I went on that on the least uh, David Poe, Lisa Loeb thing in February, March. Some, so I think it was about March '96. We came back and we said, let's just start a new band. Let's do it. And then Mink was just born that quickly nick had a few songs and just the way that this group of guys interpreted the stuff was it was it just so obvious that it had something magical about it um we quickly worked up a set worth of material i think we played we must have played out uh, we were playing out by the summer i think it was august july or august we were already playing out and there's a very pivotal character in the in the plot. Is a Dave Doman from Swearing at Motorists. Do you know him? Uh, I know no. the band name, but don't know him. He was he was uh he worked at I hope I get it right. I think he worked at Trader Vic's record store in Dayton. And he was a bit of a, a taste maker, I guess you could say, a local taste maker. I think he had seen one of our early shows, and was apparently raving about us to people and so all of a sudden for the first time there like people were coming to shows of our bands and and it wasn't it just felt it felt like there was a buzz and i'd never had that we never had that in any of these dayton bands before like an actual buzz that oh this is the band to check out yeah 96 and all of a sudden we were playing at canal street and all all these musicians from all these other bands that were like there's members of the breeders and gotta buy voices and all the kind of the sort of the top local dudes and and girls were out to see us and it felt very special and we if we're like oh wow we're finally the, we're finally cool what happened it felt very strange because i was never i never felt like i was in a cool band um but Mink was cool, and there we were, hmm. uh, and everybody was just coming to our shows, and it was great, great fun. We were playing at, we played some show. At, uh, I remember Kim Deal standing up with a cigarette hanging out of her mouth and, and giving us a standing ovation at one of our strange, long, drawn-out instrumental sections, and just these little, little moments of, of like, wow. This is way different than anything we've ever done because look at this reaction. Yeah. You know? And it was an amazing feeling. And we were in this wonderful creative creative groove together and we started recording pretty quickly. We recorded an EP, um, I think four four or five songs called uh, the cassette called Mink USA that you mentioned. And that basically what became the first half of our first album because we later on we um recorded a more another batch we put the first ep and that second batch together to create what became the the red album i guess you'll call it it's just called mink 
and it's red, and it's got a little red devil on the front. started doing this thing where we would we would get together to rehearse and we would pass around a piece of paper and that's not what you thought I was going to say we passed around was it <laughs> <laughs> um, we would pass around this piece of paper or maybe we just go to, anyway could we go in a circle and everybody would shout out the uh, just uh, off the top of their heads the name of a song title if they could just make up a name of a song and some guy would say uh, barn brains. And the next guy would say, uh, little foot. Or, and somebody else would say, solid air. And the other guy would say this and that. And we would just go around in a circle. And, um, it, that's, we had a, a list of 12 or 15 songs. And we, mm-hmm. Nobody knew what they were yet. And we would go in the basement and we look at the first title. And whoever was inspired would just start playing a progression. Um, and the band would fall in. Everybody's good at listening to each other, and sort of grooves. And there was we'd have a chord progression, and Nick would start improvising words and melodies. He was very, very good at, at improvising melodies and, and lyrics, especially. And these little song nuggets. As soon as something appeared, where it's like, "Oh, that's something," okay, we'd say, "Okay, stop," and then we would hit record on our cassette player. We had two mics duct taped to the ceiling, pointed down at the band. And we would just roll it. And we would do that with all 15 songs and come out with these really fun, very spontaneous, uh, unselfconscious music. Mm-hmm. And, and because it was like shotgun, not shotgun, like machine gun fire, like one song after the other. Okay, you know, this song, and we, you know, record first chorus, first chorus, 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 stop. Okay, next one. Take it. And then Matt would start playing a drum beat, some weird drum beat. And we would purposefully try to make it different from the song we just played. And sometimes we would uh, experiment with how quietly we could play a song. Everybody had, like, to the point where, like, everybody had their guitars turned totally down. And Matt was just tapping the drums and just ridiculous, but very fun and creative experiments mm-hmm. in, in listening and improvising and creating. Um, and so we accumulated a ton of material this way. And very, um, we cherry picked those moments. A few of them just were obvious standouts. Um, and uh, pretty much every one of those, I would say, um, became a song on, on Get In, Get Out. I have original recordings of like all these basement lo-fi recordings of all these songs. And you can hear the you can hear the soul and the nucleus of each one of these. 
emerging, and it and it a lot of it has to do with what Nick starts singing over it. It's really it's really fun to hear how much of the original kernel of inspiration we tried to uh, maintain in the in the final thing. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of those uh, uh, improvised lyrics were actually used. Um, like for instance, um, you know, it, it, you mentioned in your podcast, you said there, you noticed that Nick. Uh, quoted the Led Zeppelin lyric mm-hmm. that was just because he was messing around and, and improvising but he kept it in <laughs> <laughs> right um, stuff like that would happen and and the in Corey and I the guitar interaction was totally from um, playing metal song or you know those pop metal guitar duo songs and the, being of, of that same school, like the dueling lead guitarist oh, cool. uh, bands that we're both into, it all goes, we all go back to the Beatles, but there's, we all take various paths of what happened to us in the 80s. Um, I, I was very into Van Halen and uh, all that real, um, like the commercial pop metal stuff. And Corey, Corey was definitely uh, into that all that same stuff too. So I was super bonded with him over all that stuff, and then I was bonded with Nick over uh, British pop, Brit pop. We were both. Um, I mean, I, I I gotta admit, I learned a lot about a lot of bands through Nick because he was he kept such sharp eye on all that stuff, and he read he read British rock magazines. Uh, and it really had it really had a good he was really paying attention to all that stuff so you know he would show up with a band you know this record by this band Oasis that no one had heard of yet and he was like the on he was at the beginning of all those and but he, Nick was more into where, where we met on that Britpop stuff we veered he was more he also was into like the Smiths he came from the Smiths and uh, loved Pet Shop Boys and things like that that I, I didn't connect with as as much, but there's there's a there's a great literate side to Nick that I think maybe those kind of bands appeal to him because of. Um, that's a great sentence. But uh, that's the funny thing about Nick was that he, um, he he's he was always, and I I can say, I can I can say always and and almost be completely literal uh, that he was always reading something even when we were rehearsing he would often just be reading a magazine but still singing the lyric to the song we were playing <laughs> he always had something to read in front of his face and we were in the recording studio and hanging out he just was always had his face in a magazine and a book or a book and he brought he brought an element of literacy to to all that stuff and he's a very smart guy and had a very uh, steel trap mind for kind of all this literature he had consumed as his avid reader his whole life um, and he it was I think I mean in my opinion he was I thought he was a great lyricist and was far beyond what I felt I could do as a lyricist I think maybe he felt that, that way about me as far as a technical technical guitarist 
and player because he he was he played guitar but he was he never got to any kind of technical um, ability to where he could like hold hold it really hold it down um, as like the, any kind of lead guitar or anything like that in a band. So Nick. So- so on the record, is the guitar just you and Corey, or does Nick yeah. play guitar at all? Yes. Nick is Nick in Mink. Uh, Nick was just the standalone singer. Okay. So it was, you know, four piece with it was two guitar, bass, and drums, but then Nick mm-hmm. sang. Um, okay. So ask me a question. <laughs> so at this point, so you put so you got the the red album or whatever the self-titled or what do you want to call it? And then the get in, get out. And you mentioned about, you know, getting people out from the breeders and guided by voices out to shows. Have you, did you guys have any conversations with, uh, major labels or anything like that? I mean, nineties, the nineties were a a feeding frenzy for bands all across the country. Right. Well, that was, that was the thing that was kind of giving us hope. Um, and I, maybe I should just speak for myself. I know Nick was very, he was, he was much more cynical, um, hopeful, but cynical. Maybe, you know, looking back, probably more realistic um, about any of that stuff and would, would definitely be um, more reticent to speak of anything like that in that way. But, uh, you know, I, I, I was coming from point of, of yeah, I, I was in, in Mink, I was the one sending stuff out. But we weren't having any, any, conversations with major labels but i know i sent i sent tapes out and i got a good response from bar none remember bar none yep that was Jersey. 3d johnson's label okay i got a, i got a good response from them saying this is well done get me in the loop which is that's nice you know somebody said mm-hmm. that but i don't know what happened i mean I, we i don't know if we ever sent him anything again or i don't know I have no idea. The thing was, I think none of us particularly were good at that kind of thing and tended to default to passivity, I think, with all that. Definitely with each other as well. Nobody ever fought in Mink. There was no fights. Mm -hmm. Um, Everyone would just kind of let it stew. Whatever anything was, you just hold it in, I guess. but it, Nick and I were um, roommates still through Mink, and so this was. Uh, let's get back to the album. So, I think I have a record here. I, I actually went. I looked this up, the Dayton Daily News archives, and I actually figured out when we made Get In Get Out, because there's an interview by Ron Rollins, August fifteenth, nineteen ninety eight. Um. Nick is quoted saying, um, between, but here we go. We started it in February. This is 1998. We started it in February. Cybertechnics studio in Dayton. We did four songs in one weekend. If I remember correctly, from my memory, those four songs I'm pretty sure were Audio Sex Wave, College. I don't have the album with me. I should have brought it out. I don't know. I know those two were the two of that first batch okay and then we had our chops more together we did another weekend in april and then sent it on its merry way that's uh that's nick's quote and he goes i'm gonna quote this is a good quote everybody's very pleased 
like the title says, it's 10 songs. You get in, you get out. It just blows into your house and then blows right out. Like, what do they call those storms? Like a gull washer? <laughs> well, it's such an anomaly for the for the 90s. So many bands were like, hey, we've got 72 minutes of space to fill. We can f- write 17 songs and take five minutes per song to do it. And it's, I think what Jay and I responded to especially was how refreshing it was that it was a record that it's, the, sh- the songs are condensed. They don't take extra time. There's Even when there is some, I guess you'd say jamming or, or some experimental stuff that's going on, it's still within such a tight format that the record, like, you can be listening to it and then all of a sudden you're on song eight and you're like, I got to start over again because this, right, this right. record's so fast. It's um, short. Yeah. And I think some I think some people have started to realize in the last decade or so that it's not a bad idea to make a short record that pounding somebody with 17 songs is actually a, a good way for them to get very tired of your band quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, there, you know, what was going on at, at the, at the time in the Dayton scene was, was guided by voices was sort of, well, I'm not saying not sort of, they were definitely the, the big thing or especially around Dayton. Um, because they had, broken through uh, on a bigger level because they had their um, their albums they got on they were on scat records mm-hmm. and they started uh, getting um, a lot of recognition and and amazing approval and reaction from from people and fans and, and rightfully so because it was just so unusual uh and the, the the charm of the lo-fi, but the unselfconscious consciousness of of its presentation kind of gave it this. It, it definitely it, it had this honesty and just the strangeness of it. I don't have to sit here and explain what Guided by Voices was, but I mean that's no. what I that's how I saw it. Um, and though that kind of uh, limitless, it was it made it, it sounded limitless because of it just the lyrics were so wild and creative and wonderful but it was all in the in the, in the pop form and bob pollard's songs were so short you know and we listened to it we were we all were mostly me and I, out of out of mink nick and i definitely listened and consumed the most gutted by voices some of the songs were 30 seconds or a minute you right. know so all of a sudden it was okay to have sh- even shorter songs, and you know, you go, we'd go to a Got My Voices concert, and they're set. They would play forty songs because they were also short, mm-hmm. you know. And maybe that had something to do with it, of, of having short songs. I know that there was uh, a tendency to party a lot <laughs> at the time. There was a lot of beer drinking going on. Yeah, and- was that something that people, especially you know, Bob is legendary for that and there's been numerous stories was that something that was i guess not an open secret but did everybody sort of know about the guided by voices or or bob's house which was basically a a bar he had Uh, um he had bob had converted uh i guess it was a garage or a shed in his backyard into a bar basically and it was probably 12 by 10 feet room 
with a, they had a giant screen TV. And it, I think it was basically a room for him and his old high school buddies to watch basketball games. It became this hipster hangout. And, you know, we were kind of right, right in there and felt cool because we got to go, you know. Um, that was another strange, strange, strange measure of success. <laughs> you to hang out and and pee, but in the pee behind Bob's Bob Pollard's uh, backyard bar, uh, it was called the Monument Club, and it was legendary for you know the the kind of craziness that would go on. But is it like it Dayton's made, version of the Playboy Club, or being I, invited to the Playboy Mansion? I maybe it was, maybe it was <laughs> because well, I I felt I felt. It made me feel special, like something, you know, okay, well, this there's some kind of achievement here because I must be cool because I'm here. You know, I don't know. I, I'd never felt that way before. So I was just, I was into it. And just, you know, we all were drinking a, a lot of beer and the, they had a cooler of beer. I think, I think there was a, I can't remember if there was a rule where you, you weren't allowed to bring light beer, but everybody would be, bring their own and, and kind of stuff it into the cooler and the the great the f- cool thing was that whatever Guided by Voices album was coming out, getting ready to be released, he already Bob already had a tape of the next one, and he would play it really loud in the Monument Club, and we just we get to listen to it and stand there and drink and listen to the whole new next Guided by Voices album because he was excited and was playing it for us. So that was really fun. One of the, um, and I don't know if you can vouch for this or not, but one of the the legends around uh, Bob and Guided by Voices is that when they signed to Matador, um, that, I don't know if it was the first record that they put out or one of the records, but they were given an advance of like a a large sum of money, like six-figure sum advance to make a record. And because Bob and the band recorded constantly, he just took 10 songs that they had already recorded, put them on a cassette and sent them back and said, here's your album. <laughs> and they basically took the whole advance of like $200,000 and spent it on whatever they wanted to, like gear and right. what have you and, and beer. Hmm. <laughs> but but I, that's, I, I don't... that's one of the things, that's one of the legends that like just sort of floats around and hear people tell it or it's on the internet and like, I don't know if that's true, but that's a great story right because it makes sense right uh, you know what i don't know if that's true or not i i'm sure there's a version i'm sure there's a variation of that that, that is the true one but i don't know <laughs> that's uh i know one thing it wouldn't have been just 10 songs it was probably it would have been about 30 songs right submitted there's <laughs> also songs a, lying around yeah there's there's a book um by john sellers called perfect from now on that I it came out in 2007. I read it a couple years ago, and it's basically him talking about growing up on indie rock and whatnot, the Smiths and then Pavement, and then getting obsessed with Guided by Voices and and going out to interview Bob for like a magazine, and then basically just getting drank under the table the entire time he was there. Like he couldn't keep up with Bob and this crew, right? The entire time he was trying to do this interview, so it, it sort of becomes like a lost weekend for him. So anybody yeah, who wants some Bob stories, that's a good book to read. Yeah, it's it, it was it, it was uh, in a, I don't know it was part of the vibe, you know, because they they would play with a cooler of beer on on stage, and I guess there was a 
you know, I mean, there was this let's party part of it where it was like, look, this, you're supposed to party because they're doing it. And it's part of their their shtick, I guess, even you call it that. So what was uh, what was your experience? Uh, I assume you guys played outside of Dayton. It sounds like, you know, right from the get go, you were really well received in Dayton. How did you how the band go over as you traveled and what was that experience like? And we didn't we didn't travel very much. I think we probably um, played in Cincinnati a few times, mm-hmm. and I know we played in Chicago a couple of times. You know, we didn't we didn't we didn't venture that far out. Why not? I don't know. Uh, there was maybe it was that passivity that I was that I mentioned. It's just mm-hmm. sort of I don't know what we were doing. I mean, I it's I wish I had a, a better. Um, kind of grasp of the exact, exact kind of thought process of what was happening, but maybe there, you know, we were kind of in this scene and it, it it just, maybe it seemed like, okay, well, people just make it. I, I don't, that's that's not really the way I want to say it, but I mean. Well, that was going to be my second question. Yeah. Was like, did you guys just feel like, I mean, it, you know, Dayton's not a huge, huge city. You've got what got it by voices the breeders and i mean even brainiac had some success or notoriety yeah. so did you guys feel like okay we're the fourth band I mean, um, was that that your was that the sense maybe the unspoken feeling amongst the band well I, you know i felt like maybe it was sort of we just assumed things would happen yeah like it was going to come to you it's like point? yeah it's like well we 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 got to this point and look people really like us and the next natural thing to happen is that the right thing will come along and we will get an opportunity to maybe be on a label or something. I, you know, there's a, it's kind of an ambiguity to our approach that, that probably is one of the reasons that nothing happened. Um, there was no, we didn't have a plan. So maybe Darren was right after all. But, um, yeah. you know, well, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know what we were expecting that was realistic. I, I think we got to a point. I remember having a band band meeting and, and sort of like, well, okay, well, what do we do now? Because we um, we won we won that the tri-state area Dayton uh, tri-state area band playoffs F, the 97X sponsored. That was really cool, and we got to open the Edge X Fest, whatever. There was the X Fest that had uh, Matthew Sweet and Veruca Salt and um, a bunch of bands uh, at the time. Alternative, they were doing you know their big names on the alternative rock scene, and it just sort of was like it seemed like okay, well the momentum is here. We have our, we're already in the momentum, so we'll just ride this out and see where it goes. But that was, I guess, perhaps naive, and but at the same time cool and wonderful because we just kept creating music yeah um and with no real firm plan so i I think that's probably obviously most bands doesn't it i mean maybe not anymore everybody's everybody's too educated and the information is there's too much uh you know there's too many tutorials on youtube now of how to make it or whatever right well i I think it's it comes down to expectations and it sounds like well, you tell me, what, what were the, how would you describe whether spoken or unspoken, what the expectations were for the band? Like, 
when you guys, when you closed your eyes and thought, okay, a year from now or two years from now, this is what we're going to be doing. Right. Well, what was that? Okay. I mean, to let's see. For myself, I would say the kind of things I was thinking of were probably let's try to get a hit on the radio. You know, well, maybe that that would be. A, it didn't seem it, at the time. It didn't seem like that wild of a prospect because there was a lot of really interesting things going on in the radio. It was sort of this post-Nirvana um, uh, alternative wave where a lot of different bands, unique bands, were, were getting on the radio, you know? There's all these X channels coming up. There was, you know, bands like uh, um, like Ben Folds 5, Presidents of the United States, uh, and bands playing music that was kind of in the vein of maybe what we were doing with mm-hmm. with more like play, I guess playful lyrics perhaps but mm-hmm. pl- uh, rock but real songwriting um, so it didn't feel at all uh, outrageous to think that well, that could be us um, but I guess the, the point A to point B was, was uh, another matter you know so we just wanted to write the best songs we could and um, kind of see what happened. And I think, I think, you know what happened. I'm not going to blame him, but I, I'm going to just mention that it's uh, uh, kind of started the motion of the breakup was when Matt uh, moved away to Chicago. And I think he moved in later in 98. He must have moved in 98. So pretty after much, the second album came out, I pretty think pretty much pretty soon after it came out, yeah. He, you know, yeah, I'm pretty sure that was it when, because um, Matt had already planned on moving to Chicago, but he he delayed his exit because Mink was formed, I think, and I, I think that was his plan all along that he was going to move to Chicago because all his all his crew had already moved. Um, because he he was with a kind of a different batch of folks, that that, uh, and so all of his friends had already moved to Chicago, and that was his plan, had been his plan for a long time. But he was staying home in Dayton to save up, to leave to go move. So that was that was kind of his mindset. Even when Mick started, was that he knew he was going to go to Chicago at some point, but he put it off for even longer because of Mink. So all of a sudden, Matt is gone, and we're still uh, we're still booking gigs, and he's coming back, driving home from Chicago. You know, I'm sure it was like, when he told us he was moving, we were like, oh yeah, well, <laughs> it's like when a girlfriend moves away, yeah, we'll stay together, we'll just, you know, we'll see each other on weekends, we'll drive, I'll drive five hours, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's a long distance relationship, there's a, it, it, it can't work. So, uh, he can't, he would come home, you know, come home the night before, uh, do the rehearsal, and then we would go do the gig, and then he would drive back home. And so, we would do that, and we started, um, we would open up for David Poe in New York City, kind of every, it seemed like every four to six months, we would go up to New York City for, about a year and a half 
I think maybe three or four times we went up and did that. Um, and we opened up for David at Mercury Lounge, which is a good opportunity. You know, I mean, because those are those kind of shows are harder to get mm-hmm. as just, a, you know, we're just sending a CD in and, you know, we, we don't have any draw in New York City. So how did you feel that the the band, how did those gigs go for you guys? You know, we were the opening band and yep. it was the room was not full yet. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's weird because. I'm trying to think here, because well, Matt had Matt had, Matt was gone, and there's, so there's the that kind of fragmented feeling already, and we would we were we got to a point where we were starting to try out new drummers because we just needed to have somebody in town. We still were all there, whoever was around, would we would still get together and right do that the improvising thing in the basement, and to the point where we, I ha- I think I have. 31 cassettes full of all that stuff here in my in a box um and we uh uh you know motel beds you know the band motel beds heard the name there um well the drummer is ian kaplan and he was the guy we kind of were where we thought that he was going to be the new make drummer but um, he ne- we never played out as Mink with with any other drummer, and basically what happened was one of those shows, one of the shows when we went up to New York City, um, we all felt you know we were all excited to do it, and it you know playing in New York is a whole different thing, and it's it's magical, and um, it was to me, but uh, I remember the night. We were going. I was in uh, going around to each guy. It was after the show, and we, everybody was drinking a lot. And we're like, man, we should move to New York. Let's do it. And people were more optimistic <laughs> in the evening, uh, as opposed to when we talked about it the next week. You know, um, sober, and it, it became this kind of the thing we would say, like, oh yeah, I mean, we should move up here. We should we get jobs. We can get jobs up here. We should do it. And basically what happened was I I kind of I got to a point I think um, we were kind of Mink was spinning in a bit of a circle chasing its tail I guess um, and I just kind of we came home from we drove home from New York and I had there was a a message on my answering machine from David and he said Hey, I know you were talking about moving to New York. Um, my friend Mark is his apartment's available for sublet uh, for three months this summer. It's good. There's a it's in the middle of the East Village. It's a really great place. Seven hundred dollars a month. There's a piano in there. And I was just like, oh god, why would I say no to this? And so I just I was like, and that was what was going on in my head. I, I said, I said, okay, I'll do it. I do it. I'll take it. I just felt like that was that was a window sliding open for me, and I just had to take it. I had to go. Um, and so I called, started calling everybody. I called Nick, and I said, "Remember how we were saying we were going to all move to New York? <laughs> well, I got a place." He just his answer was, 
What the fuck? What are you talking about? I can't move to New York. So that was kind of it. Um, so we had another gig booked for the, the June coming up, which was like in three months or so, four months away. So basically what happened was Mick drove to New York to play this last gig at Mercury Lounge, opening for David Poe again. And knowing that I was going to stay and that they were going to come home. Um, and that was kind hmm. of it. Yeah. That's like Kirk Hammett leaving, or not Kirk Hammett, uh, Dave Mustaine and Metallica getting left behind while the band goes back home. Except you didn't get kicked out. <laughs> right. I, was, I basically, yeah, I, yeah I, I, never, I never said I quit. I just said I'm moving. Or was it the other way around, Jay? I'm, I get that confused. <laughs> Did they send him home and they all stayed? Yeah, they. I think he got up the next morning and they handed him a bus ticket and said, you're going home. <laughs> oh, no. Anyway. um. Wait, no, Kirk Hammond's still in the band. No, I, yeah, I, I messed up the name. I messed up you're the name, about. story, entire thing. I'm going to delete all that. <laughs> I knew None of this happened. About. Okay. None of this happened. Rewind. Um, so... So I wish I had more to say about like uh, the questions you're asking and like and like how did people when we when we traveled how did people receive us and the answer is um, I didn't it didn't feel as special as what, when we were playing at home yeah in that first in kind of that first year uh, of that kind of magical moment in the scene there and you guys were booking all your shows yourself right you weren't using any sort of like right. you hadn't hooked up with a manager to help book shows or anything like that. No, John Bruce, we fired John Bruce. <laughs> so there but, was no, you guys weren't going out to like Louisville or Nashville or those sorts of cities. It was pretty much staying in Ohio or playing Chicago. Yeah, Cincinnati, I think maybe we played in Covington or or Louisville, maybe. Something okay. clo- yeah, close there. Southgate House you know, probably in Covington. Yeah, yeah, I think maybe Southgate House we did. But it was, yeah, you know, it was... It was just play the show. I don't know. I don't know. It wasn't. Yeah. Uh, it was nothing as nothing as special as you would hope. Maybe I don't know. Well, that's what I was kind of getting at. Is that um, uh, you know we anybody who's been involved in a local scene, there's always bands. You're like, wow, this band's incredible. Like, how don't how do more people not know about them? And I think there's a lot of different reasons why. But you know, it's it's sometimes. Uh, for whatever reason, they either don't travel or they don't or aren't interested in it. Or I'm just you know curious of being one of those bands. You know what that's like to be uh, to play a show and be adored, and then go somewhere else, and all of a sudden you're totally anonymous. You know, and, right. and nobody knows what you are, and you basically have to start from zero. And in right. those situations are really tough, right? Because it's you yeah. show, you play at a terrible slot. <laughs> you know, you drove however long to get there and it's like okay here's we gotta sell our cds and kind of prove who we are and this is not an ideal situation and we've got you know 30 minutes to do it and then we're going we're packing up and heading back the next day right well i think you know i think you know we play the places and people would it would we get good reactions everywhere we played yeah um but it's like i i think uh i think there's many there's if we all had jobs. Um, Danny was. We always looked it up up to him. He he was always the one who had a, a good job. 
and um, was he traveled a lot for his work. He was out of town a lot. This was towards, um, I think maybe more so after kind of at the time Matt was gone. Um, Danny would start traveling a lot more. So he was kind of gone more. And it just was, I don't think we could have done what we needed to have done, which is get in the van and, <laughs> hey, um, get in the van and slog it out on the road as the opening act for somebody else for just city after city and live that way. I don't I just I don't think that's something that we could have done or would have done. Yeah. I I I feel like maybe I'll speak for myself that I I probably was more likely to to take that chance maybe doing that kind of thing, but I know um the other guys were less, less maybe less likely to do that, especially Dan. I think he was he was more rooted in his work, in his in his job. Um, not that you know that's I'm not saying that in a negative way, but it's just kind of the way it was. So I was uh, I don't remember if we talked about this Tim on the hmm. on episode thirty six how we how we discovered the band. Do you remember talking about? Well, I, I, th- I think yes, I remember <laughs> because I played a clip of us being interviewed when we were in a band, and the interviewer asked us what we were listening to and you brought up mink yeah well i remember it's like inception like th- we're no, talking th- about something that talked about something that talked about something <laughs> i think I, re- I think i remember discovering the band on one of the early music promotion sites so you can tell me if you remember anything about this because you may have been the person that would have put the music up but i think the site was called garage band potentially okay. And it was the premise was you upload music, and uh, once you review, basically you can upload music after you review other people's music, and so you get all this like feedback. But then it would create this um, essentially charts. So you'd have all these independent bands that would have, you know, top you know, whatever charts, mm-hmm. and and your I think it might have been Solid Air was either number it was in the top five of either nationally or locally whatever whatever category we were in our band was in you guys were like in the top five and i just remember at the time i mean this would have been like 99 99 or 2000 yeah this this sounds familiar what and all the other bands at that time were i mean there were so many like the you know new metal stuff i mean and so you'd go through and click through most of these bands and just be awful and i just remember hearing i think it was solid air and just being totally like not at all expecting it um, right in terms of how melodic it was and just not anything like any of those other bands so and then i think um i bought the record off cd baby uh, at that time are you were the guy (laughs) you i think you may have uh we may have had an email exchange this is all coming back to me as you were talking because uh, I may have, because I remember at the time, like, because we sold CDs through there as well, you would get the name of the, the person that bought it, uh-huh. and you may have sent an, a thank you or something, and I may have replied and just said, hey, is the band still together? And I remember you talking about being in New York City and basically saying that, not, that the band wasn't really doing anything. So, that could as be, you, uh, that would have been me, yeah. Yeah. Huh. So as you were, as you were talking through all this, <laughs> my mind was like, 
all these things were like triggering like oh yeah that's where and i remember that i remember his email and so and i think i mentioned in that podcast that i found the cd at a record store in cincinnati um and it was like behind glass like (laughs) was it it wasn't like in all this yeah it was like a collector's item like it was like more expensive than most cds because it was in this special case where like you know it was like if you wanted to get like Nirvana bootlegs on CD uh, that were right. imports from Europe, they were behind this case. And there was, there was the mink CD and it was like $20 to get the CD. And I was like, Jay, that's the CD. That's the CD we were looking for. What, uh, what year was that? That had to be 99 or 2000 somewhere in there. And wow. you know, we're, and we're in Columbus. So like we're going through used kids and and at the time singing dog and magnolia thunder pussy and all the record stores that were here in sour records you know constantly going through their used cd bins looking for stuff that we didn't own that we were you know trying to fill in holes in the collection and uh when we'd go out and play shows we always stop at a record store so like cincinnati there was a record store on vine street that we went to and um louisville had your ecstasy was a great record store yeah so we're always like stopping at those record stores to to find records and it just going to that Cincinnati record store. I don't remember what the name of it was, but that's where we found the. That's where I found the record, at least. So I feel like we should do a proper. So we do a roundtable discussions on the show once, okay. yeah, once a month or something. I feel like we should do a proper Dayton roundtable and have Morgan on, and then maybe like Chip or somebody that wrote uh, at the time. I feel like we could do a whole, you know, easily do a whole hour or so on just, you know, Dayton in the mid-90s and early 90s to try to understand, like, what was going on there. and Yeah, because yeah, it had a really interesting set of bands, you know, Guided by Voices doing their thing. And then Brainiac is a really influential band that most people have not heard of, but, like, they influenced, like, Nine Inch Nails and At The Drive-In and... Yeah, you know the the faint and all these bands that came after them—they were hugely influential, uh, getting name dropped by or all sorts of bands. And they were, I think, uh, Eli Janney from Girls Against Boys produced their records, and yep. um, you know, just a really cool and interesting band that I think could probably we could probably do a whole episode just on them. But I think as yeah. a yeah. as in terms of like yeah, definitely exploring some of the smaller music scenes around the country in the 90s Dayton would definitely be an an interesting one people know about Seattle people know about some of the other bigger ones but you know Dayton would fit in there I don't know if it's on the same level with like Chapel Hill because of Merge I think I think that's probably the one thing that Dayton was probably missing was like that record label that gained gained national prominence I mean don't you can get 97X in Dayton, right? Or no? Just, yeah. Yeah. Just barely, yeah. Just squeak, squeak, squeak it in on the dial. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would think the presence of that, even just in the vicinity, was somewhat helpful. Yes, so. definitely. Well, that was, you know, that we got played on there. Yeah. I think I played on, on there. It was nice. Um, but, yeah, there was, I think, it, you know, in retrospect, looking at it, um, the breeders were was it 90 they were like 94 was kind of their that was when the, the last was that last splash 94 something like that uh 93 93 okay 
It's earlier than even earlier than I thought. But um, but I don't they, think it hit right you know, away. Jim Dale was right. So I guess you know, looking back and sort of like we're thinking like, well, the, look at the breeders, you know, look at God of My Voices, look at um, Brainiac, and I mean Brainiac had yet to had yet to kind of crack what uh, breeders had done. They they weren't the breeders were on the radio. That was the difference. But um, I remember. Maybe that gave us kind of a false sense of of, a, of what we could do, but, but really their stories were different. I mean, the Breeders had a got a different chance because um, Kim was in the Pixies, so that was a different. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like they were just. It wasn't like they were just the girls from Huber Heights who made it. You know what I mean? Right. They uh, had they had a different path that uh, aided that. Um, and oh, we we uh, we loved it. we loved it. Um, I'm not saying I don't want to come across negative to them about them. Um, and kind of by voices, I mean they were it was they were basically Bob had given up the rock dream and was just drinking and and making these wonderfully strange basement recordings with his with his friends. And somebody got a hold of them and they kind of. You know, in ninety in nineteen ninety early nineties terms, went viral, and people loved it. And they, you know, they got distribution, and and then they were like the hip thing. So that that path was unique to them. And you know, we weren't doing anything close to what Brainiac was doing. Uh, they were in a whole creative realm unto themselves. I mean, what Tim was doing. So. I don't know, I, but there was a there was undeniable magic vibe in that time period that we felt like we were kind of in that wave for the brief, the brief crest, perhaps you know. Yep. And the the thing is, the music. Listening back to it, it, it still it still holds up. You know, that's the bottom line: is the music holds up, and I look at it back at it extremely fondly and we actually got back together in 2006 to record it and play and and it was it was great i mean it was like we had never we hadn't skipped a day you know yeah that record which is called come over i mean it sounds like it could have came out in 1999 or 2000 Right. In terms of the in terms of the sound of it, in terms of the songwriting compared to Get In, Get Out. I mean, it sounds like the natural next release, but yeah. yet it's, you know, nine, ten years later. Right. Um, yeah. So let's jump ahead a little bit. So, because I, I don't want to uh, leave out what you're currently doing, because that's pretty interesting. Um you moved to New York, as you mentioned. Can you kind of give us a brief sort of like summary of what happened in New York and then take us up to what you're doing now? Yep. Um, so, so yeah, I moved, um, I moved to, you know, it was June 3rd of 99 was that last make show. And I basically, um, got uh i got a you know I, I went with a bit of kind of ambiguity of what exactly i was gonna do i mean i just knew that i wanted to to just see what i could do really you know see 
um, just felt I just felt excited about the possibilities of just pursuing, you know, music and art. And I, I uh, one of my goals was to get a job as um, as an illustrator because I'm also a cartoonist, and I, I've always wanted to try to find uh, a way to kind of realize the potential of of that side of what I what I do. So uh, my goal I was to come up to New York City and I would get a job as an illustrator by day so that I could support myself and then at night I would pursue music in whatever way I you know whatever path came about. So what ended up happening is I was um, I went around and I dropped my portfolio off at several uh, magazine publishers and children's book publishers and um, book imprints and collected a, a big stack of rejection letters and um, basically I don't want to I don't want to draw I don't need to draw I'll just pursue music <laughs> so um, I, I very in, very quickly got a job as a sound engineer at this club small music the singer songwriter club in the Lower East Side called the Living Room and was just immersion therapied into this singer-songwriter scene um, and was running sound. I, I wasn't a sound man, but I, um, I, I got recommended the position, and I, I kind of just came on as the fill-in guy, where, like, Morgan knows. He, he, he knows his way around the soundboard. It's a small club, and he can be your fill-in guy if you need. And within weeks, I was the main sound man and had just I basically taught myself um, I had very little instruction but I, I just figured it out and learned how to run sound and I was the, the nice guy from Ohio who hugged everybody and ran sound and made it sound good and and to the point where people were were booking gigs at the living room and, and asking if like make sure Morgan's working on the night that I'm playing and things like that so I was making a lot of friends and having this really um, amazing time as a sound engineer, and I was exposed to this this really cool music scene that was it wasn't really where I had I had come from. You know, I was always this band, 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 and this was more like solo person who, if they want a band, they hire a band. You know, it's, but it's all, it's about the person. It's about the name of the, most of the bands that I saw were like that. It was like the person's name was the, was the bill, which, um, you know, I'd never done anything like that personally. So, but it was very inspiring and there's a lot of great, great, uh, talented songwriters. A lot of, uh, people were coming through at the time and, and I'm trying to think, I think it was within that first summer or soon after, um, when Nora Jones moved from Texas and was kind of got into the scene, and we watched her ascend to stratosphere through the living room. That was fun. And but this was kind of the the vibe of of what was going on there. But so in, it was so much of it, and it was so fast that I I started 
kind of I had my own creative revolution, I guess you could say. And I found um, within a few months that I was just on this really great streak of, of writing, very prolific song a day kind of stuff. And I was writing so much that I was actually amassing more songs that I could use in my band. Some of the songs were more playful in nature, uh, fictitious first person songs about weird characters and things like that. And I, I was very unselfconscious in this kind of outpouring onto my four track cassette player, cassette recorder. And, um, and, and I was having a great time as well. Um, when I, once I started playing out, um, like getting a great reaction to the Morgan, Morgan Taylor, Morgan Taylor's rock group. That's what I called it. And I thought that was a pretty clever name. <laughs> and, uh, so, um, I was, that was, that's what was going on. And, and I, um, I toured a little bit with that band and, um, I basically, what happened was I, since I was still, you know, I'm still the Ohio band guy. So I didn't, even though it's, you know, me, it was Morgan Taylor, <clears throat> I still, my band, I needed a band to be a band. So I had these four guys and I, I working at the living room night after night after night, I handpicked guys who were very good. Um, but also, I, I, there was so many musicians, so many great musicians that I could also make sure that they looked cool too. You know, <laughs> so I was like that guy's good, but I, I don't know if he would look right in the band. So I picked guys that I thought were had that the the look and uh, and all this stuff. So I was I was just kind of creating my own fantasy band because I could. You know, I I, I was able to. So that band, um, we recorded an album at the Magic Shop, um, another analog recording. Um, I don't know if you've heard of that studio. They're, it's a relatively famous, uh, I could say they're famous. It's a famous studio in New York City. Mm -hmm. And one of the owners of Living Room also owned that. So he was around a lot. And he was <coughs> kind of witnessing my... Uh, ascent, I guess, in, the, in my little corner of the world in this in this club, and um, and he's like, "Well, you gotta, we got to record a record." So anyway, I went in and, and we recorded an album there, and um, uh, did a very minimal amount of touring, and then I started getting. Uh, let's see what happened. I had the, my band. And my, I think, I think the average lifespan of a, of a, of any band is I've been in is is three about three years. I think that seems about about the lifespan that seems normal for a band. I don't know how many that is, how much long that is in people years. <laughs> a band, how do you figure that out? I guess what it's uh, every, thirty years for one year, something like that. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, I think I think um, three three years for a band is like you're a teenager. Right. I think that my cycle. And so Morgan Taylor's rock group was um, 
I was trying to be like, oh, I don't know, I I want to play with different guys, maybe, you know. Maybe I should just go on solo. Um, I, I record, um, think uh, my, I don't remember this, I don't remember the exact order of things, but on this, but I released, I think I was, I was dissatisfied with what was happening in the band, with, with uh, the band. And so I recorded a solo album. Of, and this sounds weird. I was, I was, I quit Morgan Taylor's rock group, and I just became Morgan Taylor, <laughs> um, and recorded quite quickly and perhaps too quickly. I think it was reactionary of like, I just want to do everything myself. I just, you know, enough playing with other people. I just want to, I want to play my own bass. I want to play my own, whatever. You know, I want to. So that was kind of maybe the vibe going into that record, um, and. What was that called? That was the record was called Dream in Green. Uh-huh. Which you can that, that I think it's on iTunes. Yep. Um. So, I think what part of it was the I was recording all this stuff. I'm a bass player as well, you know. So that's a huge part of it for me is the bass, and I was recording these these four track demos, and I was going for it on the bass on all these things, and um, I. I feel like maybe the 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 bass player who, who was in the band at that time, and I feel horrible saying it because I just love him dearly, um, couldn't play the same way that I could, and maybe I, I was frustrated at that. And was what happened was he we had to sub him out for one show, and I used a guy we knew, a New York dude named Rob. Rob Jost, and we were, it was a night, we had a residency, and we were playing two sets a night. This guy, Rob, he, I gave him a CD, there was 22 songs he had to learn. He learned all 22 songs without touching his bass, just like driving and taking notes. He, he's like, oh, this is good, I'm driving to Boston this weekend with my dad, and, and I'll just sit and listen, and, and I can listen to the music. But he came and did the show, he took notes, he put the sheet of whatever his scribblings were on the music stand, and nailed the entire gig, just. Wow. And he would he had learned, he lifted all the parts off of my demos, and it sounded so much the more the way it I in my head I thought it should sound, that basically it was the end of that band. I'm like, fuck, oh man. So I that was kind of what started the disintegration of that group, and so I. Was I quickly recorded Dreaming Green and I um, played a record release show at, the, at the, the new living room, which had moved. And as I don't know what you call it, fate or or what, but the um, I was double booked in the place I worked. I had the the, the manager had double booked my slot time slot. I worked so hard. I, was, I sent just so many emails. I, I, I refused to send a, a group email out. I just emailed, emailed everybody individually to get them out to the show. I wanted to really fill the room. And a lot of them came, but because I was double booked, a bunch of them peeled off and, oh, we got to go. We're going across the street. Sorry, man. Have a good show. And it was just that 
God, what am I? This is, why am I working this hard? This is just so. This is, this is painful. And I played the show, and because it, it was double booked, their room was um, the band who played in the slot. I got bumped to the, to the later. It was like nine o'clock slot, mm-hmm. so I was actually at ten. I'd lost a bunch of my audience, and all the people that played at nine were gathered in the back of the room, just talking really loudly through the entire show. And you know, I'm playing acoustic guitar in the band, and it's a listening room. But it was, it was a bunch. And they talked over it, and I was having, I had a terrible time, and I just had that feeling of like, why, why, why am I doing this? Um, I was, I just, it was, it was a, I hated it. I hated it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. Um, my girlfriend, she's my girlfriend at the time, we're not married, but Rachel Loshak, um, I think I said, I think I said something like, you know, I just, I want to take a, I want to take a break and just, just do something else for a little while. I mean, I didn't want to quit music, but I just was like, maybe this is just not the right, I don't know, I don't know, this is not the right approach, why, why I don't want to start another band, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. And she said, well, why don't you start that, uh cartooning like that children's book thing you had that idea you had for for drawing a children's book so I said okay yeah that's a good idea so I I started um, I started drawing out a picture book that was um, uh, I took the I took the music from some of these these more whimsical first person fictional character songs that I had in my, you know, I had, and started drawing out the lyrics. But I was, I drew this character, um, this yellow pointy-headed guy. Was I decided, okay, well, he's the person saying these words. He's the one looking at the moon. Um, and and I had a song about a pterodactyl who kind of he wear he, he dresses up in his tuxedo just in case a party happens to start that night kind of things like that that was the concept of the song and so i i drew out the first two songs and and i bound them into a book i printed them up and glued and printing and binding and i made these little picture books and it was very refreshingly fun and i started showing them around to people and people were just like whoa man this is the, the reaction was was stronger than anything i had done up to that point um, I had that, that that kind of feeling, the reaction I was getting, like, well, this seems very special. Maybe I should focus on this for a while. Mm-hmm. And so I kept drawing these these picture books, and I did two more songs and bound up another book. And um, so by this point, I'm like, okay, well, let's make 20 copies of this, and we'll just send them out to book publishers and I'll get a publishing deal. <laughs> and it'll, it must be, the, it must, you know, this, this will stand out. And of course, you know, it's another world where I know nothing about the publishing world and it's extremely competitive and, and nuanced uh, in how you do everything. And of course, of course I knew nothing about it. And so, um, it, it didn't catch on with anybody, but one of the people we showed it to was uh, one of Rachel's contacts, this guy who had a, like a post-production 
uh, video editing house and he worked on TV commercials or something and he had an animator and he he saw it and the first thing he thought was like well you should you should animate these these should be these should be animated videos and my first thought was well yeah that's someday yeah right animation mm -hmm. come on that's like way out of I have no idea how to do that mm -hmm. he's like well no we I, my 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 guy on staff we could we could we could do that and I'm thinking God that must be so expensive I. I it turned out, I think, for like twenty five hundred bucks, I had animated the entire first ten song DVD. Mm. Um, and so I had one of the. There's a funny moment when um, this uh, this animator we became friends, and he called me. And he was so he was working on the next batch. I kept giving him the, the Photoshop files from my all my artwork mm -hmm. and the music and he was animating them to to in it because I had drawn them all and thinking they were gonna go, go into books, they're all flat in the flat hand drawn images scanned into a computer. Mm -hmm. So he had to like so he he separated out small elements um, and I, I think I gave him, I, I drew eyelids for the characters so they could blink, things like that. And very few elements of the things moved. So it had this very mellow um, storybook vibe um, in where the, it would pan around within the still image, kind of Ken Burns effect. Mm -hmm. And then the characters would blink and then maybe one character, if I had separated out like a foot... It could tap his foot or something. So it had this super gentle um, storybook vibe. And these songs were um, alternative pop nuggets, playful lyrics. And it, and it just was the right combination of things. And the reaction, I just started getting really great reaction. And I started getting press. And... Um, and I started playing shows because I was like, well, what, how, how am I going to play a show with animation? I don't know. Um, so we figured out, okay, well, if I have the, I have the still images in, a, in the computer, we can get a projector and I can have someone advance the slides as I sing. And so I, we hired a guy to stand, sit in the audience in the middle of the room next to the projector and press the arrow key on a Mac. <laughs> <laughs> and soon realized oh well Rachel can do that that's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's what happened and um, I got I got a little band together and, and and a couple of the same guys from the rock group and started playing concerts and, and the reaction was, was so positive so quickly um, that it was just felt wonderful again like I was happy to I was all of a sudden it's again again another example of like the side project becoming um, what I thought was like a side like a diversion was ending up to be the actual career um, because I, um, I played a I played a birthday party in in uh, Union Square it was like some. It was a boy's sixth sixth birthday, and I did a Gustav show in in their house. 
And one, I think the mom was a writer. She wrote for the real estate section of the New York Times. And we did the party. It went well. Everybody had a fun time. And so at this point, you know, I, I figured it out. I'm, I, it's me, movie screen. I can play along to the backing tracks. We have a version of the music with the vocal taken out. So I'm playing the guitar live, singing live, and talking between songs. I'm kind of developing this show. Mm-hmm. And it's gelling, and it's it's starting to smooth out a little bit. And um, the parents are digging the the because the lyrics, you know, there's it all came from not kids' music. It wasn't kids' music when I wrote it at all. Mm-hmm. It was just this strange fantasy first person thing I had come up with. And um, the parents were really reacting to how different that that seemed and felt to them that it was. You're saying you're, the lyrics are saying things that kids' music doesn't say, like referencing mortality and just not. It's not at all kids' music, but it's I'm singing in uh, in first person. There's a fictional character there who is it's you know bright yellow character, and it seems it looks like a preschool art. Like I mean, preschool uh, of children's book for preschoolers but then the things I'm saying are an extreme contrast to what the images are are the vibe of the images so I think that was super appealing to the parents and it also created uh, it, it was an accidental combination of all these elements that became the style of what I knew okay well I'm just going to keep doing that and it's extremely natural because that's what I, that's what I want to do I want to draw, and I want to. I want to get. I want to convey humor because I. It's a big part of me and my personality is. I want to make people laugh, and I want to draw, and I want to make music, but I want to write. Make I want to make serious music, but I want to. It'd be weird. It'd be fun to sing about unusual things. So mm-hmm. that's how it came out. So Gustav Friedel was born, and a couple of weeks after this party. Uh, I got a call and it was the mom and she's like, "Hey, I, I'm doing. An, I have an idea. I'm doing an article about couples in New York City working out of their homes, and I wondered if I could come to your house and interview you and Rachel because she knew that we did the Gust for Business out of the house and Rachel's music. M- Rachel, my wife, is a musician as well, and she um, has her, had her. That's how we met. Is she um, was one of the people who performed at the living room regularly." And we became friends through that and just, you know, ended up going out and then getting married and having kids. So, but this is pre-children. We didn't have any kids yet. So Rachel had her, her career and had, has had a very interesting musical career of her on her own, completely separate. And so, but the article was about a lot about her and a lot about Gustafer and us doing um, Gustafer together because Rachel was doing her own music, but she was also helping me as far as like administration and management of the Gustafer project, which was perfect because that was the, the stuff that I wasn't good at. And Rachel's brain works in a much different way. She's much more organized. And so she was kind of helming the, the administration part of Gustafer for me. So this, um, the woman comes over to do the interview and we're talking about it and there's real photographers coming over taking pictures of our apartment and this is for the real estate section uh, of the New York Times and 
but it's it's becoming focused. She's focusing a lot about on what Gustafer is and about me and and things um, in it. And so there was a moment I remember she kind of stayed at our house and she was lingering. I think she's waiting for some waiting for the angle maybe. Hmm. Um, and I said something. It was a moment and kind of a thought I had where I was talking about how I was so I felt so refreshed. Oh, and I, at the time I was 36. And I remember, um, no, I was 34. And at the, at the time I was feeling old. I felt old, you know? Because, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, I'd played in all these bands for years and years and and, and um, no sign of any kind of solid career, basically. And I was 34 and I was turning a corner in, in my creative life. And I said, you know, it. It's like if I think of what I'm doing now as far as inter- family entertainment, like guys like Jim Henson or Dr. Seuss. You know, Dr. Seuss, gosh, he, he peaked in his 50s, right? He wrote Cat in the Hat and he was 57 or something. Yeah. But um, I was thinking, you know, if I think if I think about more along the lines of, of a career like somebody like Dr. Seuss, that sounds – now that, that sounds way more – uh, appealing than worrying about what Radiohead or the Strokes are doing. Yeah. So, you know, if I'm going to try to be the new Dr. Seuss, then, then God, the whole the whole world is just opened up for a whole new, completely new to me right now. And she kind of jumped up. She's like, "Okay, I'm going to go now." And so the article came out, and then the headline of the article was, "The new Dr. Seuss reimagines the musical in the real estate section." <laughs> it's like whoa, and and then in the in the body of the text, she described Gustav Moore. She's like, it's like cross between Dr. Seuss and Yellow Submarine through the lens of the Lower East Side, and then from then on, it was this. I had this amazing quote: "Dr. Seuss meets Yellow Submarine." The New York Times that I plaster on everything I put out. Mm-hmm. But it's sort of like I couldn't have asked for a better, and it really helped a lot. It it just having that press, the momentum of that um, one one bit of press, just fueled the next two or three years of getting m- tons more press and write ups all over the place. And I've had people in in performing arts centers say they they booked me because of that quote, things like that. Right. So, so I developed this this career accidentally, and the and I, and honest and it's an honest move because um, it wasn't like I just, well I can't I can't make it in this in this music industry so I'm going to do something really easy and just play for kids now you know it wasn't it doesn't. It makes me. I definitely don't feel like I have had to compromise anything to start doing to do what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Where I, I feel like maybe I don't know. Maybe because I know a lot about the genre of, of family and kids music now that it sounds like a stereotype or a cliche of like the failed rock star who now plays birthday parties. <laughs> but wait, did I just describe myself? I hope not. You know. Mm. Um, but well, it, it, but it, it was I, I. All of a sudden, people were taking me seriously, and I was now felt like I was 
doing something that was, oh, well, this is just a fun thing that is too easy because it's just cartoons and music. But all of a sudden I'm, uh, op- I'm opening for Wilco doing it and the polyphonic spree and saw somebody, they saw my website and they saw that I made cookies, uh, Gustaver shaped cookies at my show. And we got to get this guy to, op- you know, to come down and play our, our, uh, holiday extra- extravaganza in Dallas. So there I am again, you know, I don't have a band, but I have a movie screen next to me now of my cartoon drawings. And I've, I'm like doing hipper gigs than I've ever done in my life. <laughs> and, and there's teenage just throng, throngs of teenagers shouting pterodactyl with the chorus of the pterodactyl song back at me. And I'm selling just like DVDs as quickly as I can hand them out after the show. And it was like, wow, well, this is not what I expected mm. as a career. I mean, in a way it, it was, it's a, it was kind of a best case scenario for me uh, who I, you know, I've always, I've just wanted to draw. I wanted to draw cartoons and I've loved comics and cartoons and, and rock and roll. So I get to combine them and that's, that's what I get to do now. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's amazingly, amazingly fun and rewarding. And, and so Basically, I put out a new DVD every year and a half to a year, and I'm just finished. I just finished my seventh one, and put that out. So they're basically they're collections of every DVD I put out. Augusta for Yellow Gold DVD is uh, an album, but it's a video album because I hand draw a music video for every song on the album, and there's all different characters in Gustafer's world. Um, and so that's what I do now. And I was able to, to go full time in 2008. After a couple of years, I, I, I stayed a sound engineer and, and did a, a lot of other things too. But I feel like I've uh, talked a lot. <laughs> <laughs> now, well, it's I been mean, it's good the- to uh, because you know, you, uh, Mink was a band. We we had a you know a really hard time coming up with any history. So it's kind of cool to be able to get sort of the backstory that the full picture there and then up to where you are now which is in a way a a twist but i guess when you know the backstory it kind of all makes sense like i think like you said like it's putting together all the things that you do well into one sort of presentation so it makes sense and um the the another thing that i think um i gained the mink was extremely value, valuable with the whole, you know, making up songs on the fly, mm-hmm. uh, basement. Um, one of the, one of the, one of the other things I do is, is along with, no, j- along with, uh, straight up performances and shows that I do. Um, I also go around and I do, uh, cartooning workshops and I do songwriting workshops in libraries and schools and stuff as well. And there's a part, there's a point when you're doing a songwriting workshop, there's a point in the, in the workshop where you actually have to just kind of pull something out of thin air in front of everybody. Right. And I feel like those, those days back in Mink when I was, when that's exactly what we were doing, gave me this great comfort in, in, in confidence in being able to do that and improvise 
and come up with some kind of a pop uh, a chorus or something out of thin air kind of quickly. So I, I feel like that was um, a huge, a huge uh, part of my development. So, that, you know, I guess to say there's no wasted, no wasted, no, no band with a waste of energy or time. Mm. Something extremely important out of every single one of them. Um, so, you know, but Mink was the last, Mink was the last one that I, that was a band band mm-hmm. for me, you know, and it's extremely special. And that, that kind of, when I saw, um, the podcast for, that you guys had put out, I just, I couldn't believe it really. When I, when I <laughs> saw, and I saw what it was and I'm like, what? And I sat and I remember sitting, listening to it. Um, I think I had, uh, everybody else was asleep upstairs and, and I've got two young sons and, uh, everybody was asleep and I had, uh, my headphones on and I just was like, it felt like a, it was a weird dream or something like these guys. I mean, guys, they, they're, they're, they care about this. Oh my God. This is, this is so weird. Cause it's it's so and I then I saw when did this come out I'm like oh my god this came out a while ago, uh, that's really cool and I, I just was just extremely compelled to. I gotta tell these guys I gotta tell these guys what <laughs> what was going on yeah. they don't know they need to know. <laughs> so well, I, I, I loved I, it. And you also suffered from uh, a lot of other uh, '90s bands that. Um, named themselves pre-Google. So when you, <laughs> any yeah. hope of finding information on the, on a band using the term mink isn't going to really help you out very much. No. So. If, there, if you go on iTunes, there's a few, there's a few of them. Right. Right. There's, 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 and also there's, there's cropping up a lot of Morgan Taylors as well. It's pretty funny. If you, if oh you, yeah. If you do a Twitter search for Morgan Taylor, you're going to come up with like 500 people. So. Yes, most of them are female. Yes, I I think what's so cool about this episode—not that I want to toot our own horn or anything—but in a, num- a number of episodes we've done this year, we've talked to people who were musicians in the '90s and have either they're still playing music, but they've evolved their creative pursuits in other directions. I'm thinking like we talked to Matthew Sweet, and he was talking about how he's into sculpture now. And we talked to John Davis from super drag and he's painting along with doing music. And I, th- I think that kind of the, mo- I don't know how to say there's a moral to this season, but like the, the thing that keeps coming up is that creative people do creative things, even if it's not what they're known for. Like, yeah, it's just a matter of the creative process being important to people and wanting to create and be in that sort of space and it whether or not it's always music and that's the thing that they're known for does it you know some people would stay with music the entire time but other people evolve into other creative pursuits and i think that's really interesting because a lot of people we've talked to have gone gone off on the different tangents so some of them write some people do computer design i mean there's like all sorts of different aspects of creativity that continue to be explored so 
Well, I, I think I think that may, that might be true of a lot of creative people where there's there's just sort of this energy that exists in them, and it's gonna it's gotta get out some way. And some some of them have a knack for more than one. And I think I think that's common to have. Um, it's a common thing to have, uh, like a vi- maybe visual arts, as well as part of kind of what you do. Um, it's a lot. Of, a lot of musician, musicians are surprised. I'm surprised to find that, that are visual artists as well. Um, and uh, but yeah, that's the, I, what I what I keep saying. Also, is you know, if I wasn't able to do this as a career now, I would still be doing it for for free you know i mean i would still mm-hmm. be compelled to do it so no matter what happens it's uh it's kind of this the creative uh person's um destiny to just kind of have always have some kind of output you know right and, well i think uh we're we're well past the two hour mark so yeah this would probably be a good point for us to direct our listeners to where they can discover uh, more of your work. What websites, Twitter, Facebook, that kind of stuff. Where should they be going? Well, um, uh, Gustafer Yellowgold. If you if you just Google Gustafer Yellowgold, it's the only Gustafer Yellowgold. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so um, it's easy to find. Uh, all na- this stuff is up top. Unlike your band, the name is Google Proof. That is a Google Proof name. <laughs> I Googled it. When I thought of the name, I, I thought, you know, I better Google that just in case. Yeah. And it was the only one. Yep. And then we did have one person uh, who left us a question. Or not a question, actually a statement. When we, when we posted our preview for this episode, David Weisberg said, he hopes that you would talk about Morella's Forest. Does that name ring a bell? Yes. He said they were a great Dayton band. Overlooked. Any, yes. any comments on Morella's Forest? Oh. You know, I know I now okay, I just remember the name. Um and I don't remember I don't remember a song. I don't remember a song. That's kinda how you remember <laughs> bands. I don't They have a Wikipedia page. Really? Yeah, they formed in 1992. They were around for 10 years. They were we'll on. Um, hmm? We'll have to dig into them on the uh, roundtable. On the roundtable for, for <laughs> Dayton, Ohio, yeah. That'll be on well, the list. Well? So study up. There you go. I will. I will. Because you'll be back for that one. <laughs> you are, that you've would been, be amazing. You've, you've been uh, uh, drafted for our Dayton roundtable next year. Okay. Okay. So uh, I, I feel like um, I don't know. I hope I hope um, my uh, long lead-in there was was okay. I, I know that's a lot of information and a lot of names, and I don't know. I, I think maybe that's probably uh, a uh, typical typical kind of path. You know, people kind of they zigzag around in in with a lot of the same musicians leading up to something that is ultimately special so i hope maybe that's kind of a way to look at that uh long lead up to mink yeah it comes through on the record i mean you can tell when you listen to the record like okay these are i don't know if seasoned is the right term but i mean you you can tell you guys it's it's people making music that have been 
around a little bit and sort of are pretty savvy, but there's still like this unique energy to it, which you described the, pro- the you know, the process of how you created it. So it makes sense of like, it's not overly, I don't know, overly precious. It's still inspired and it sounds like a live band. And yeah, so really, it all, um, the way you described it, it all sort of makes sense now why the record sounds the way it does. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you guys were, you guys were correct about a lot of it which is that we recorded it live in the studio and it was analog. Um, and uh, I think maybe Nick probably did a scratch vocal in the booth like while we were all playing. But mm-hmm. we definitely got all the... We got the take, you know. We, the band just played the song. And and um, in the digital age now, I feel that's it's becoming more and more rare. Yeah. To, it's still, you know? it's, it still sounds great now. I mean, it's not over-compressed, so if you... You crank yeah. it, it sounds fantastic. And yeah, if you wanted to put it out on vinyl, you know, do a reissue or something, it would, <laughs> that would be, be. Uh, it would sound well, really nice. I'll tell you, when you guys start that record label, <laughs> yeah. we already had a record label. That's long gone. <laughs> Dig me out records. We uh we we did the instead of having the fake uh, manager, we had a fake record label that we uh, <laughs> somehow actually turned into a real record label and convinced people to put out records. So. Maybe maybe we'll re- revitalize that for. Uh, a, what was the name of it? It was called Reverbose. Okay. And, it could be uh, Reverbose slash Fisk. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the, Nick and I are comic book geeks, and that is the that's the fist of um, Carlton Fisk, the kingpin, you know, Spider Man's enemy. Mm-hmm. So I thought the, Carlton Fisk was the catcher for the Red Sox in the seventies. Wilson Fisk, sorry, Wilson Fisk, sorry. Okay, I was confused there for a second. (laughs) (laughs) Right, that Fisk. Carlton Fisk is the kingpin? Whoa. Whoa, (laughs) wait a minute, my mind is blown. Who who was Pete Rose? Uh, Doc Ock. All right. We got to wrap this up. Um, yes. Thank you, so Morgan. Much. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, spending your Sunday evening with us. I loved it. Um, and, and the record is on. Uh, it's on iTunes, and uh, your solo, uh, both your solo record, your solo record, and your uh, Morgan Taylor's rock. Is it rock yes. group? That's on yeah, iTunes so, as well. Yes. So uh, yeah, that's a that's a that's its own story. But um, those are there, and all the Gustafer Yellowgold stuff is on is on iTunes and Amazon and all that. Cool. Yep. All right. Thanks again, Morgan. We really appreciate it. Um, I appreciate it. I, I just, it's so great that you guys are doing this. It's a great, it's a great podcast and um, it's, it's a great thing. It's, it's, it's good for, for, uh, it's just for good America. to know it exists. Good for America. It's good for, it's good for the kids. <laughs> It is. It is. Um, Well, we appreciate you know you saying that, and we're happy that it's you know every once in a while we get it. I think maybe two or three times we've gotten an email like yours, and then people say, "Hey, you you actually got what we were trying to do," and so that's uh, really like important to us that we're we're not speaking off base about stuff, and actually comes across that we. Oh, care about this. Um, so uh, I was listening to the record today with uh, 
my five-year-old daughter. And we're sitting there, and she's like, did he say get in the van? <laughs> I was like, you know, I don't know if he said get in the van or get in the – Are you? is the lyric get in the van? Get in the van, yeah. Okay. Oh, listen to the quiet. Yeah, that's right. He's saying get in the van. Okay. Yes. I can clear that up for now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> She's like, that's silly. Why is he saying get in the van? I don't know. Because? Oh, well, it's, uh, I mean, I, it, it, if, we're, if we're wrapping up, it's going to put a can of worms. No, we're done. We're done. <laughs> I got to go to bed. I got to yeah. go to my job in the morning. Thanks, guys. All right, Morgan. Thanks, Morgan. Take care. Have a good evening. All right. Bye. Bye. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Yeah.